0: So we're sitting at a really cool place in Capitol Hill, Seattle, called Ada's Technical... Books and Café. Yeah, Yeah. and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a half bookstore, half café, and it's filled with all sorts of great scientific nature, philosophy, technical manual books and also has a really great cafe where i um ordered some really delicious oolong tea and some rosemary uh chocolate chip cookies so yeah Um, i'm also really enjoying the fact that it's very science themed in here so for instance the little card that they gave us um for our order well i got a card and diana got a card my card was card Letter C. Usually these things have numbers on them right, in, right. in different restaurants, right? But yeah. here they do letters and yeah. the letters stand for something. So I got C for cell membrane. So and you I'm, got a, a picture. I got a little picture of a little <laughs> cell. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. And then Diana, what did you get?
1: I got J and uh, the illustration were of the Jovian moons. That was very cool. Which is
0: super awesome, right? Like they could have just stopped at J for Jupiter. But they went a step further and Andrew was are just like super nerdy about it. No, it's not just Jupiter, it's the Jovian moons, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, those are some of the cool aspects about this place that I'm really enjoying. And I think I will come back here. So, thank you for introducing me to Otto's Technical Books and Cafe. Yeah, um, you're welcome. As part of my exploration of Seattle. <laughs> Hello, angels, red or otherwise. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Today, I have a brand new guest joining me, Diana Windemoot, a graduate student in astronomy at the University of Washington, and she'll be helping me to discuss. Aspects of Star Trek Discovery's second season, including the most recent episode as of this podcast's release, the episode titled New Eden. But first, we are going to get to know Diana and talk about her research. Diana is a planet hunter, but she's after a very specific breed of planet, circumbinary planets. These planets are worlds that orbit two stars, or binary stars, and as it turns out, for reasons that Diana will describe later, they're much harder to find than planets orbiting just one star. To find circumbinary planets, Diana is sifting through data from the Kepler spacecraft, humankind's most prolific planet-finding telescope to date. This telescope stared at a bunch of stars for several years, recording what are called light curves, the intensities of individual stars over time. When stars are blocked, say, by a passing planet, their brightness dims momentarily, as seen by Kepler, and there's a corresponding dip in that star's light curve. Now, as we've mentioned on Strange New Worlds before, Kepler recently retired, but its data has yet to be fully analyzed. What other Strange New Worlds could be hiding in those data? Let's head back to Ada's Technical Books and Café to find out. Diana, why don't you start off by just explaining who you are and what kind of science you're interested in at the University of Washington.
1: Okay. So I am a hopefully finishing year graduate student here at the University of Washington. We call it the UW. I study exoplanets. I am in the astrobiology program here at the UW. And specifically, I study the population statistics of circumbinary planets. So these are planets that orbit binary stars in a wider orbit. Much like, you know, Gallifrey in Doctor Who or Tatooine in Star Wars.
0: Yeah, it's true. Star Trek doesn't have the most famous circumbinary planets in science fiction. But it does have some notable ones. For instance, the planet Talos IV from the original series episodes The Cage and the Menagerie is shown to be in a circumbinary system. But Telos IV is a quarantined world, so let's not say any more about that. The homeworld of the Tellarites, Tellar Prime, is said to be in the 61 Cygni system, which is an actual real-life system composed of two stars, 61 Cygni A and 61 Cygni B. For any star enthusiasts out there, 61 Cygni A and B are K-dwarf stars. That means that they are slightly less massive and slightly cooler in temperature than our Sun. But the orbital periods of those stars about each other is about 700 years, which means that they are pretty widely separated. Thus, Tellar prime only orbits one of the stars, 61 Cygni A according to Star Trek lore. This is a scenario different from the type of planet that Diana is looking for.
1: So, um, I guess it's a good time to kind of categorize the different types of planets around binaries. So, as you were saying, the binary stars themselves orbit around each other, and they can have different orbital periods or orbital separations. So, what we know about planets that orbit in a wider orbit around both stars is that these planets typically are around binaries that have periods of tens of days so less than 1 AU typically
0: an AU being an, an AU being an astronomical unit
1: okay. which is the distance from earth to the sun um, and so the type of planet that the tellurites live on, they are called circumprimary or circumsecondary planet, meaning that the planet is actually orbiting around either the primary star or the secondary star. And it's not encircling both stars. And the difference is that, right, the the stars are much more further apart, which means that the planet can be dynamically stable orbiting around one of the stars.
0: How unstable is an orbit around two stars, one of these circumbinary planets?
1: Uh, you know, they're stable, so in the circumbinary, there's this minimum distance from the binary star beyond which the planet is no longer stable dynamically because of the changing gravitational forces of the binary. That makes sense. Um, So if you're
0: too close to these two stars, which are doing this very fast dance around each other, you're just going to be gravitationally flung out of the system. But if you're far enough away, I suppose those two stars to you seem gravitationally sort of like they were just one bigger star. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And typically that number is about three to four times the orbital separation of the stars themselves.
0: Got it. That's really cool to know. Yeah. All right, so science fiction certainly suggests that there are lots of planets around binary stars, and not only are they prevalent, but they are also habitable. And this question of are circumbinary planets prevalent and habitable is exactly the sort of question that you're trying to answer with your research. But science is hard and you have to take things one step at a time. So uh, I'm gonna ask you a few questions about how you're attacking this much larger problem of the statistics of the populations of circumbinary planets. Um, But first of all, to you, why is it important to know these things about circumbinary planets? Great question. So we
1: know that the majority of stars live in binary systems, and we have these great statistics on planets around single stars, mostly due to the Kepler mission. And we also have our own solar system to kind of study it in more detail. We don't really know that much about planets around short period binaries, short period meaning tens of days. The statistics are not that great because we, let's see, there's maybe a handful of um, these planets that have been detected so far. Whereas Kepler has found, you know, thousands of planets around single stars or effectively single stars, there can be a secondary star orbiting the system at a greater orbital distance.
0: So like the case of Teller Prime, where it orbits one star, but there is a second star out there. Right, right.
1: That's right. So yeah, for single stars, Kepler has found thousands. Um, For the circumbinary planets, we have 12.
0: (laughs) That's not too many. Can you tell me why it's harder to find circumbinary planets than planets around single stars? Sure.
1: So uh, the Kepler mission is a mission that looked at light from a star and looked for indirect um, signals of a planet that goes in front of the star that periodically blocks out some of that starlight. So when you have a single planet around a single star that signal is periodic When you have a planet going around binary stars, that signal is no longer periodic. So it's more difficult to detect these planets in
0: in the light curves. So imagine you're staring at a star, and there's a planet orbiting it. And it takes, let's say, 47 days for that planet to complete one orbit. That means, if you are in the right geometry, every 47 days, you'll see a slight dimming of that star. It blinks on a regular 47-day period. On the other hand, if you saw the star blink and then it blinked again 20 days later, and then it blinked again 3 days later, and then it blinked again 98 days after that, you'd probably say, there is something crossing in front of my star but it's probably not a planet because a planet has to orbit the star with some regularity. Those are just random blinks from any number of other sources. Okay, back to our one star with one planet orbiting it. Let's imagine we added another planet to that system. Now, there's one star orbited by two planets. That companion planet's gravity tugs on the first planet ever so slightly, and now, instead of crossing the star every 47 days, that first planet will block the star every, let's say, 47 days and 30 minutes. Or it'll cross a little sooner, 47 days minus 30 minutes. All right, that's not so bad. You'll probably notice the trend and say, look, there is a planet crossing my star because it happens on some regularity, plus or minus a small deviation. And in fact, you can use that deviation to tell that there's a second planet in the system, and in fact, being very clever, derive that planet's mass to be responsible for such a 30-minute timing deviation. So that's pretty cool, right? Okay, let's go back to our one planet orbiting one star, and instead of adding a second planet to the system, let's add a second star. Now, that second star is going to do exactly what that second planet did, it's going to tug additionally on our first planet, but it's going to tug it in a much more dramatic way, right? These stars, these two stars, aren't just sitting there. They are twirling around each other in a really fast dance. And our planet is feeling ever-shifting gravitational forces from these two stars, depending on what their relative configuration at any given time is to the planet. So this means that our planet's transit is going to get shifted. It's not going to come every 47 days, and it's not going to be shifted by on the order of minutes. As Diana told me, it's going to have a deviation from periodicity of days. And there's the rub. This second star means that there is no more orderly period to the planet's transit as seen by us or our Kepler spacecraft. So that means when we stare at these stars, they can look like they're blinking randomly. Crap. How are we ever going to tell that they have planets? Okay, so how in your research are you tackling this very very difficult problem?
1: What I'm doing is I'm writing a pipeline with kind of like a simple physical model, a toy model of the system that essentially calculates the timing offset between when a planet would transit in front of a star and when the planet would cross the barycenter of the system. And using that timing offset, you can basically transform the light curve to a frame of reference where one of the stars say you want to look for transits around the primary star so that star is stationary and so you would get um, more periodic transits that way. Does that make sense?
0: (laughs) I think you lost me. (laughs) Okay, no that's fine. Um, Let's see. So you're writing a computer simulation essentially, yes. for the system, mm-hmm. to sort of predict what kind of transit timing you might see from a given planetary system?
1: Yeah, yeah, essentially I'm predicting what the deviation from periodicity is, mm-hmm. and, and then matching that to the data. What I'm trying to do is essentially do a blind search for these planets in the Kepler light curves. So I don't know a priori if the system if the binary system has a planet or not and I'm trying to Write an automated pipeline that would you know look at each of these Kepler light curves and Search for the presence of a planet by trying many 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 thousands of times um, Saying Okay, let's put a planet around this binary. And let's say, let's pretend that this planet has a 100 day orbit. What would you predict that timing offset from a periodicity to be? And then you search the the data to see if the signals that you're now stacking up, if there is a signal there, if there isn't, then, you know, that's not a detection. And then you kind of march further out. Now let's pretend that this putative (coughs) planet has, you know, a 120-day orbital period. What's the predicted timing offset? And then you kind of build up from there.
0: Oh, I see. Okay, so you're basically making Mm -hmm. a bunch of imaginary systems in your computer model, Mm -hmm. and then you predict what kinds of transit patterns we would see for each of those systems, and then you say... Here's the Kepler data. Mm -hmm. Do I see any of those patterns that I've predicted inside of any of the light curves that Kepler has observed?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Cool. And what have you found so far?
1: So far, I have found the planets that have already been found by eye. So these Kepler circumbinary planets that have been found by eye are typically large gas giant planets. So if you look at the light curve of one of these systems, you can see right away where the transits are. So, yeah, it's a little disheartening that I haven't found you know, new circumbinary planets.
0: But you found the ones that we know are definitely there, which means the p- your code works. It works. Um, more than I can say about my code. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but what we really want to do is push down to find rocky terrestrial planets. You know, a tattooing, so to speak. Um, the difficulty in that is that the noise is highly correlated, and so the pipeline has a difficult time separating correlated noise, astrophysical noise from the stars or from the telescope, from you know actual signatures, because the dips that we're looking for for terrestrial-sized planets are very, very tiny.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but. Even though the pipeline hasn't found anything yet, what you can do with null detections is that um, essentially I've simulated a universe full of binary stars with planets and binary stars without planets and then fed those through my pipeline to see how well my pipeline detects these systems, given say the orbital separation or the period. And from there, I can then kind of extrapolate, well, in an ideal universe, I am sensitive to say planets that are twice the size of the earth, but we don't see any of that in the real Kepler data. So then you can kind of separate the observational biases and the failures of your detection pipeline from physical motivations like Mm. these planets are actually not there.
0: Right. Okay. So what what is the actual explanation do you think for the absence of finding smaller terrestrial planets based on your study so far? Is it that they're really not there? Or that we can't detect them? So based on
1: the results of my pipeline completeness, cannot say that they're not there. It's just that the pipeline is not yet sensitive enough to detect these um, smaller planets. Got it. Okay, so there's still hope hope for...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good. Okay. Um, And so let's say that they are there. Um, Join me in speculating about the habitability of such worlds. What do we know so far and what are the biggest unknowns in characterizing and understanding the habitability of circumbinary planets?
1: That's a great question. Um, Well, one thing that I think about a lot is that on a circumbinary planet you essentially get eclipses very often, meaning one of the stars will go in front of the other star and block out the other star's light. How does that affect, say, the atmosphere, um, the heat retention of the planet? if there's life on that planet like say you have um a binary system where the primary star is like the sun but the secondary star is like an m dwarf which emit um, more radiation in the in the red parts of the spectrum when the secondary the red star its light is blocked how does that affect you know life on a planet if that happens you know, very periodically, yeah, don't know the answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess we could uh, imagine some kind of life that would be very particular to a certain part of the spectrum. Say it really likes red light. And uh, every once in a while, that M dwarf will get <laughs> eclipsed. And all of a sudden it will go, no, where is all the red light gone? And then the M dwarf will come back and they would rejoice or something. <laughs> or maybe there would be some kind of cool um, photosynthetic biology that could sort of switch its photopigments yeah. um, back and forth between different modes to absorb whatever radiation is coming at them at the time. We could write a science fiction novel all about this. <laughs> or propose an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't that just tickle your imagination and invite wonder? And what a perfect segue into Star Trek. But before we wander down that wormhole, let's recap what we learned. First, circumbinary planets are worlds that orbit a tightly knit pair of binary stars. Second, they are really hard to find because the transits that they produce deviate from periodicity by large amounts due to the variable tugs and pulls of their host stars. Third, a really clever person like Diana has to step in and build physical models to calculate those seemingly random deviations from periodicity and comb the large Kepler dataset for them. So far, we don't know what the occurrence rate of small terrestrial planets around binary stars is. But once Diana and her colleagues figure this out, we'll have taken a great step in our knowledge of planet formation and be well on our way to characterizing the habitability of circumbinary planets. So yeah, let's move to Star Trek.
1: (laughs) Great. Well, as you know, I binge watched the first season of Star Trek Discovery. Discovery. And uh, the first two episodes of the second season, I watched more closely since that's what um, you said we should talk about. But anyway, I have so many questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, let's, let's let's back up to, um, prior to Star Trek Discovery, how much Star Trek have you seen and what is your relationship to, to Star Trek?
1: Okay, so my relation to Star Trek is, as I was growing up, I grew up with Voyager, and um, I know a lot of diehard Trekkies really, really dislike Voyager, but I found it, I don't know, it was part of my childhood and um, some of the episodes are are really, really memorable. Um, So yeah, that's kind of the Star Trek world that I'm more familiar with.
0: I don't know any diehard Star Trek fans who dislike Voyager. Maybe it's just because of the age... Like, the age bracket that we share. Maybe. Maybe we all just grew up with Voyager, so we can't really hate the series that we grew up on. Um, What are some of those memorable episodes or memorable moments from Voyager?
1: Let's see. I was thinking about this, like, with respect to some of the similar themes that came up in the second season of Discovery. So on the second episode of uh, season two with Discovery, you know, they come across this planet of basically humans that have been separated from Earth in the beta quadrant. Yeah. And that episode really reminded me of I forgot the name of the episode but essentially Voyager discovers some space junk and one of the space junk turned out to be Amelia Earhart's airplane debris and so that episode really stuck with me and (laughs) okay also the um the asteroid in season two we should talk more about the asteroid um but it kind of reminded me of the episode in voyager where they talk about i think it's called the omega directive Mm -hmm. the opening scene i remember was like i think Essentially, the bridge like shuts down. Everyone is locked out of their controls, and then Captain Jane with strides in, and she's like, "I'll take all the inf- information in my ready room." But yeah, those episodes really stuck out to me when I was watching the first two episodes of Discovery.
0: Uh huh. Very nice. Yeah. So, um, so I know you just you binge watched season one, and. Star Trek Discovery is a completely different flavor of Star Trek from what we've seen before, um, different from anything, including Voyager, so I was just wondering what it, what it felt like. I know you didn't watch them super closely, but surely there was some kind of, like, were you shocked by certain things or themes or aspects of, of this newest show?
1: Yeah, um, I enjoyed it overall. But I I do think that there was a lot of like, the marvelization of of Star Trek. Oh, interesting!
0: The marvelization, as in like the Marvel, yeah, universe. the superheroes okay. kind of
1: universe. Um, yeah, that was kind of my initial reaction. Um, what do you think?
0: I I see that also that and. and Because I'm also very interested in the production aspect of Star Trek. I I follow the different news outlets and blogs that show interviews with the cast and the producers and the writers. And I I do get the very distinct feeling um, that they are trying to create a more cinematic universe for Star Trek, very similar to, I guess, what is going on with Star Wars right now and also the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think it's even been explicitly... Not trying to copy, but like emulate that kind of experience where there's a lot of different Star Trek going on at the same time that have different flavors, but all tie into the same continuity. So Discovery is leading this whole charge with CBS All Access. But there are several new Star Trek series in development right now, each with a very distinct flavor, not just from previous Star Trek from the early 2000s, 1990s through the 1960s, but from Discovery itself. So there's an animated Star Trek series, I think two animated Star Trek series in development. There's a series that centers around an older, uh, very different Captain Jean-Luc Picard. or He might not even be the captain of a starship anymore. We don't have very many details about that and then uh, there's going to be a series centered around Michelle Yeoh's character, Philippa Giorgio, but the Mirror Universe one who comes to the Prime Universe yeah. and enters Section 31. Yeah. So all of these different Star Trek series are about to come our way, and I think it's the intent of the producers to actually create something akin to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but I, I think that's not actually what you meant when you said Marvelization. Maybe you meant something about the, the way the characters hold themselves or the way that they interact with each other?
1: Yeah, you're right. That's not what I meant because I had no idea that this was going on. <laughs> um, I think what I really liked about, I guess, Star Trek Voyagers was that, you know, each character gets developed. It's not just centered on, say, the captain. And maybe what I mean by Marvelization is that there's one hero in the movie. There's one hero in Star Trek. Um, and I like that hero. I mean, I, I like Michael's character a lot. But um, yeah, I think for me, what I really love about Star Trek was the exploration of characters given different you know, environments in the Delta Quadrant and space.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, That's an excellent characterization of the difference between Discovery and the previous Star Trek incarnations. Yeah, it is very centered around Michael Burnham and told through her lens and her perspective, which is, I think, a refreshing take on Star Trek, but, yeah, it leaves us wanting more action from the surrounding officers, not just the other main officers, but the secondary officers, the bridge crew. Um, when you watch Star Trek, does your scientist side of your brain sort of shut down or is it still active and picking up on science things? And if, if, if it is, what are some cool science or science-related topics that uh, stuck out to you from season one?
1: I mean, there are certain elements of the storyline where you can like suspend belief, but there were some bits of it that I kept on... I remember watching it and then rewinding, being like, what does that mean? How did they, how did they, because some of the te- you know, technology is one of the kind of, um, without the story of the mycelium um, network and that technology, there would be no Star Trek Discovery right. season one. And... I did not understand the mycelial network.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that is uh, universal. (laughs) Nobody quite understands it, except for um, Paul Stamets, I guess. I guess so. Did you know that Paul Stamets is a real guy? No. There's a real scientist named Paul Stamets. No. Yeah, and he studies mushrooms. He studies mycelia. And uh, his whole deal is that mushrooms connect forests and um, that trees sort of talk to each other and transfer biomass and nutrients to each other through the fungi that co-inhabit the forest floor with them. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really fascinating. He's written a couple of books, I haven't read any of them, but yeah, the the Paul Stamets in Star Trek Discovery is named after the real Paul Stamets, who is a scientist who studies the mycelial network on Earth. Now, Star Trek just takes that idea, basically, and extends it to the universe and the multiverse. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's based in sort of real science, but it does take that leap, that suspension of disbelief, as we said, to take something that is actually here on Earth and move it towards extra-dimensional realms. Um, my, my, my new life goal now is to become the type of scientist... Who Star Trek writers will name (laughs) a a character after? (laughs) Um, Would
1: you want to be like a captain or a science officer, engineering officer?
0: Totally captain, of course, yes. Who doesn't want to be captain?
1: I don't think I would want to be captain. You
0: You would be saddled with very difficult choices like the choices that Captain Pike has to make in Mm -hmm. New Eden. So yeah, let's talk about that. New Eden, the second episode of season two of Star Trek Discovery, has Captain Pike sort of at odds with Michael Burnham about how to treat the culture that they found on this planet. So Mm -hmm. just to recap for uh, listeners who may have watched this episode a long time ago, basically... Discovery is chasing after one of these red signals that they're investigating and trying to understand, and the red signals take them to this world that is inhabited by humans who were somehow transferred by the still, as of this point, unknown red angel, unknown in who they really are and unknown in their true motivations, but apparently they took some humans from the Third World War and brought them to this place where they have... Flourished, albeit in a society that sort of resembles colonial America mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in its technological extent. And a big theme of this episode, New Eating, is the conversation between science and religion. Mm-hmm. And um, bringing it back to Pike and Burnham, basically, Pike is super respectful of these people's culture, their beliefs, and their values. While Burnham sees these people as extremely backwards and lost, very limited by the primitive technology and primitive perspective that they have on the universe, yet in the end, Pike beams down to the planet and breaks the prime directive Mm -hmm. to retrieve this World War III helmet that shows them that the Red Angels actually brought the society there. that, that was a really difficult decision for Pike to make and I love these kinds of moral and ethical conundrums in Star Trek yeah
1: I it, think yeah yeah I was gonna say that this last episode felt like the most Star Trek episode because I'm like that is I feel like the essence of Star Trek's storytelling right Continue.
0: and <laughs> it, it makes us ask ourselves what would we do in Pike's shoes. Mm -hmm. So, Diana, what would you have done in Pike's shoes? I know you said you didn't want to be (laughs) Captain, (laughs) but if you were...
1: (laughs) I think I would have done... well, it's hard for me to say because although Captain Pike didn't want to stray from the Prime Directive, or or General Order 1, like we see that they already have because They did bring alien technology, and even though they tried not to break their cover, they've already revealed themselves. But also I think that thinking about the context of the history of the people on this planet, they aren't an alien race. They were brought there without consent by these red creatures. That context, I feel like, make the choice a little different from, you know, if they had just discovered a completely separate um, species on this planet.
0: In this episode, Captain Pike quotes Arthur C. Clarke's Third Law, which is, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, mm-hmm. and. He says that this has been translated by scholars over the centuries to say any significantly advanced extraterrestrial intelligence is indistinguishable from God. And I was wondering if if that resonated with you or if you agree with that kind of statement?
1: Um, This is a really heavy question. Yeah, it is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry this episode was so deep and philosophical. I didn't expect it to be, but I mean, that's good. That's good. It sparks these kinds of discussions.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I grew up an atheist, so I don't, I feel like I don't truly understand faith um, at the most base level. So I don't know if I can. Really no, say actually, that's, to
0: that. that's actually totally fine. Because, I mean, atheism is a completely valid viewpoint of the world and the cosmos and the way things work. So um, you definitely have lots of input to say on on this. (laughs) Just because, I mean, atheism, I guess, it shouldn't be defined as an absence of faith rather than its own legitimate view on the universe. So I would agree
1: with that. I think that the process in kind of religious faith and scientific faith I feel like in the purest form, shouldn't really be different, it's just that maybe the endpoints are different, but in both cases, right, you are observing the natural world to prove, in the case of science, fundamental physical laws, but I don't know if that is necessarily at odds with faith in a religious sense. I guess what I'm trying to say is that what corrupts religious faith also can corrupt science.
0: Right? Oh, what do you mean by that?
1: <laughs> I mean <laughs> I mean it's not like science is this like monolithic thing that you can put on a pedestal like there are no mistakes in science. There are experiments that have been doctored, right? And I feel like that's a perfect mirror, like corruption, so to speak, is a perfect mirror of corruption of faith. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yes,
0: that does, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. You think they'll find Spock in the next episode?
1: Okay, this is my worry when I saw the previews on Spock. Um, I, I mean, I like Spock, but there's this weird obsession with Spock in the Star Trek universe. <laughs> Yeah, I guess they'll find Spock, but I hope that the trajectory of season two won't be kind of shifting from, you know, Discovery, Michael Burnham, and um, the rest of the officers that that we've seen kind of like a glimpse of, to like everything about Spock. Um, yeah, I'm just tired. You know. <laughs> no you, can, you I can should say not say this you, you but I'm so tired of Spock. I mean I think that we should let Spock be
0: that is a completely valid viewpoint and Yeah, I've interviewed people on this podcast before who are like, you know, why are we bringing back all of these old, worn-out characters into Star Trek Discovery? Let's let it be its own thing. Let's discover and develop new characters instead of bringing back these old faces to, I guess, satisfy longtime fans. And while I find the prospect of finding Spock and a younger version of Spock who may not be exactly the spock that we know from the original series very very fascinating and i eagerly anticipate finding him i do get that viewpoint too like yeah spock has been around for a very long time and uh and i'm very curious about other characters like saru um and and dr stamets and his uh relationship to dr culver and like just yeah. developing some of those right. plot lines yeah. as well. Um, but I do think that season two is going to revolve very much around the Spock-Burnham relationship, and that is sort of inevitable. Um, but we'll see whether Spock plays a really big role in discovering the long, multi-season run. Um, and I, I, I suspect that you don't want him to.
1: <laughs> I mean, okay, I think it would be fine if you know Spock were... The way that I viewed the previews, my fear is that Spock will become the center around which all of the characters will orbit. And that is very tiresome. But if Spock were, you know, kind of a cursory character that periodically perturbs the characters that we've already come to enjoy, like Michael, to see like what the effects of that would be on her character development, how she interacts with the crew. That would be interesting, but my fear is that it would be the former, and not the latter.
0: So to bring things full circle and to tie up this science and Star Trek theme, what if it were the case that it was more like Spock and Michael as the two binary stars orbiting each other very, very closely, and all of the other characters, like their planets sort of orbiting at a distance away. Would that be satisfying to you, or is that still not doing it for you? Diana's shaking her head.
1: I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that is satisfying to me.
0: <laughs> you don't want Spock as Michael's little binary star twin. You, you want him flung out of the system. <laughs> Ejected gravitationally.
1: I want him to be the tertiary star that's typically on orbits of several thousand years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's great. Well, I guess that's a good place to end it. Um, thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, thanks for this experience. Yeah, yeah.
0: Overall, I thought that New Eden was a great addition to Star Trek Discovery. It was definitely the episode of Discovery so far that has given me the most classic Star Trek vibes. I think it was the right move to make from a production standpoint because it gives Captain Pike a lot of depth and richness to his character right off the bat, off of the very exciting and thrilling episode one. We get to know our captain a little bit more in episode two of the second season. I also really enjoyed that Lieutenant Awushikun joined the away team and showed some of her amazing brilliance outside of the context of being stationed at the ops console on the Discovery Bridge. She uses some really awesome cleverness to pick the lock of the cellar that the away team was sequestered in down on planet Terralisium. And I thought that was a great example of showing a bridge officer out of her normal kind of situation, but able to rise to the occasion. And I hope we get to see that from all of the bridge officers in the near future. I can't let you go without mentioning that as a former yearbook editor, it was really fun to see a 23rd century yearbook, indeed Centilli's yearbook, Uh, where she is trying to investigate her friend, May. And I'm sure we'll learn more about that very soon in the coming episodes. But what an intriguing mystery Tilly has on her hands. Also, I'm really glad that it was mentioned that the dark matter asteroid contained Metreon particles. At first, I remembered Metreon from the Metreon gas in the Briar Patch that the Starship Enterprise ignited in the movie Insurrection. But then I recalled that Metreons were actually discussed in Star Trek Enterprise, the episode First Flight, where Captain Archer and T'Pol take a shuttle pod out to investigate a patch of dark matter and end up proving its existence through interaction with Metreon particles. So I'm glad that Discovery has kept this kind of continuity going on in the Star Trek technobabble mythos, as Metreons aren't real particles. Dark matter only interacts through the force of gravity, not through the force of electromagnetism. Electromagnetism is the force that actually helps molecules bind together and form solid objects, like asteroids. So I'm glad that this asteroid wasn't purely dark matter, because that wouldn't make sense. A clump of dark matter would just be a blob of dark matter pulled together by its self-gravitational force. It wouldn't form a solid object. So I'm glad this dark matter asteroid is part normal matter and part metrion particles, whatever they are. Last little scientific tidbit, I I just want to put out the hope that somebody mentions that these red bursts are emitting or perhaps are located in subspace rather than in normal space. Um, This is something that I've been looking out for, and I don't think it's actually been mentioned, this connection between subspace and the radiation coming from the red bursts. Why is this important? Well, these red bursts are spread across tens of thousands of light years in the Milky Way galaxy. And if these bursts are just turning on, well, we shouldn't see that light for tens of thousands of years because electromagnetic radiation propagates at the speed of light and no faster through normal space. So I really just hope somebody, some writer, realizes that the radiation from the red bursts can't just propagate instantaneously through normal space and therefore must be doing so through subspace all right well i said that was the last thing but the real last thing is the next time i see james t keen i am going to make him explain why crisscrossing rings are unphysical until next time see you out there
1: Thing that stuck out to me was, um, you know, Michael's talking about the death of her parents and how it seemed like the writers were alluding that she felt guilty because she was the one who wanted to remain on the planet to see a supernova go off instead of going to Mars. <coughs> but you can still see the supernova <laughs> if she went to Mars. So. It definitely detracted from kind of the emotional build up of that scene for me. <laughs> because they didn't have to die.
0: <laughs> that's great. That's no. that's only a true astronomer would say something like that.